Welcome to Planet Geo, the podcast where we talk about our amazing planet, how it works, and why it matters to you. You always say you're recording, but then you're not really ready yet. You, you're well. You know, I know, but l- look at me go here. Is <laughs> a whole Does process. The mute work. Let me test that a minute. I had something to say to you. And now I've forgotten. There's a whole process. You know what? You know what? This is the problem, Chris. You tell me you're ready to go. And then there's like five minutes of you faffing around and I lose my train of thought. Like I had something really important to say to you. And now I've forgotten it. Yeah, I I bet. I bet. (laughs) The how rapidly you lose information out of that little pea brain that you call ahead of yours. It's true. It's an amazing thing, actually. So it's very impressive. Hey, let's get the ball rolling here. Yeah, let's do it. Today we had the great pleasure. I mean, I always say this, but this actually, we mean it. We really mean it. This was an amazing interview. Ashley Grosh, who is the vice president of the Breakthrough Energy Fellows Program. And we're not going to describe that because she gives a very good description of what this program is and what it's all about and, and is way better at explaining it than us trying to explain it. But I'm going to give a little bit of a history here, Chris, of her resume and why we wanted to interview her. So Ashley worked at Wells Fargo for about 15 years, led and managed an ESG, which is environmental, social, and corporate governance investing fund there at Wells Fargo. She's now the vice president of the Breakthrough Energy Fellows Program. She's a director at Gates Ventures. She coaches soccer, the Colorado Elevation FC. She has a bachelor's in economics and finance from Colorado Boulder. She was actually named to the 40 under 40 in Colorado and recognized as a top woman in the energy industry by the Denver Business Journal. And she's on several advisory boards, energy-related and clean tech industry-related advisory boards. And this was really fun. I I had a great time. It was. Yeah, it was awesome. And hopefully we will do this again, right? The oh, door yeah. was left open. I, I always like so. it when we end a great interview and, you know, yeah. the person we're interviewing is like, hey, we should do this again. I always want to just jump at the fact to be like, let's do it now. Come on, let's do it. This is great. It's so fun. I mean, we could have talked for hours with her. But what's the point? Like, why did we interview Ashley, who's not a geoscientist? Right, right. I have this little little thing that I wrote and you told me not to to read it. Okay, and I'll do my best not to read it. And, okay, uh, I can see the soapbox. Get that your just... soapbox, take your soapbox off the shelf and put it under so you can stand on it in a minute. Okay, I can do that. Um, well, here we go. So since the Industrial Revolution, humans have added a lot of fossil fuels, which have immensely increased the quality of our life. This isn't a horror story, right? It's just, that's the way it is. They're super energy dense and very valuable. Right. We've gotten to the point, though, where the world is adding over 50 billion tons of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere every year. And the science of how these gases trap heat that is re-radiated by the Earth's surface has been settled for a long time. And I'm, we're just going to say that. like, <laughs> This is a settled issue. We had an episode on what the greenhouse effect actually is way back when, when we started Planet Geo. That's right. That was a long time ago. That was fun. John Tyndall. Joseph Fourier, they measured their heat trapping abilities back in the 1800s, long before there was any political debate about this whole topic. And so the Breakthrough Energy Fellows Program identifies and supports the best and brightest individuals and teams across the globe to develop, scale, commercialize technologies that have the potential to reduce carbon emissions by at least 500 million tons per year by the year 2050. 
that's a lofty goal. That is an incredibly high bar for somebody trying to get into this program. That really astonished me. I didn't know that they were aiming for this really high bar of transformative technology. So let's just jump right into the interview. What do you think, Jess? Yeah, let's do it. Here comes Ashley Grosh. Great interview. But before we do that, follow us on all the social medias. We're at Planet Geocast. Visit our website, planetgeocast.com. Send us an email, planetgeocast at gmail.com. We've gotten some amazingly great listener questions recently. Keep them coming. We love that stuff. Um, And we're putting together a listener question episode here in the near future. So That's right. Hey, share Planet Geo with somebody that you think would uh, like it. Absolutely. With that, let's get to Ashley Grosh. Hey, just to note, we were struggling with the audio on Ashley's end for a very brief period of time right away during this interview, but it fixes itself pretty quick. So apologies for that and enjoy the interview. Today, we are extremely excited to have Ashley Grosh, Vice President of the Breakthrough Energy Fellows Program here on Planet Geo. Ashley, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. We are very excited to dive in. Chris, do you want to lead us off? We got like way too many questions. Hopefully we get to all the interesting ones here. Yeah. All right. Ashley, you have spent your entire career in sustainability and impact investment. What brought you in that direction? Can you give us some background on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, I've always been interested in more of the math and science side of things. So I was a, a finance and economics major in college. Uh, just a, an incredibly curious person overall. But really, I went into banking right out of college. And so I went to Wells Fargo, I moved to Chicago, and was working in alternative assets in alternative investments. And so I was a research analyst, and basically, you know, looking at a bunch of different topics. And I was fortunate enough to be put on some energy, some offshore wind, forestry projects, We were looking at uh, tilapia farms. So I just was learning (laughs) all kinds of things. I was looking at switchgrass. I was looking at biofuels. And I hadn't really spent a lot of time in those areas. But I sort of say that was my first LED moment that went off is I felt that, you know, renewables uh, were going to be the way of the future. And so I really got my hands on everything I possibly could in that sector and came up the curve pretty quickly in terms of what the technologies were today, and then understanding, you know, what was the future going to look like in that space. <laughs> and so I mm-hmm. guess I just, it, in some ways, I got pretty lucky because right out of the gate, something really hooked me that I just couldn't get enough of. So that was right out of college, though. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I yeah. So I I was really lucky to find my passion early. You know, really soon after college. That's interesting that you found that after college, though, that your kind of aha moment was when you were actually working in the field. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think I grew up outdoors, right? So I grew up in Colorado. I spent some time in Texas, played sports my whole life, but I've climbed 14ers. I've camped everywhere. So I grew up in a family that we were just always outdoors. So I think I naturally had that already ingrained inside of me. I also was a biology major starting out freshman year of college. So, (laughs) you know, there was a little bit of that and then switched over into more of the economics and business side. So always had a passion for the environment, but specifically what I was going to do with it, right? From a finance lens, 
that being my launching off point and, and gave me a lot of opportunities, was lucky to find that pretty early on. Yeah, that's interesting. Jesse and I, both of our dads are into biology. They're, <laughs> they were biology teachers. And so we're geologists and we give them a lot of crap about, you know, look, your biology gets in our way. It covers yeah, up right. our geology. Uh, all, all these the time, plants you know? covering up the rocks. I mean, what's <laughs> up with this? I mean, oh my goodness. Uh, that, that's really cool. So I, from the outside looking in, Ashley, I, it, you work at Wells Fargo, right? Wells Fargo for 15 years or so. And now you run, uh, you work for a nonprofit, I think. Breakthrough Energy is fundamentally a nonprofit. Is that right? So it's actually a platform or a network of different initiatives and funding vehicles. Um, we do have a foundation. We have a C3 entity. We have our Breakthrough Energy Ventures Group, which is more of a, a venture fund. And so we are sort of a hybrid in terms of the way that we uh, think about ourselves. So is there like a time, a point in time or something you read, you kind of alluded to books. Is there something that kind of pointed you in this direction of, oh, focusing on, you know, climate and investing in climate sort of science or research or solutions? Yeah. So let me give you the history of that. So I, cause I think I've got to go back to Wells Fargo. I was there for 15 years. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, learnings that happened there. And when I was early in, you know, as a researcher learning about alternative investments, but there's science. So can I so, can I ask you? To, I always think alternative as alternative energy. But what does alternative investments mean in that space? Yeah. So good point. So you know you have your traditional capital markets where you can buy stocks or you can buy bonds, right? So fixed income bonds. And so alternative investments are things that are not readily available usually in the stock market. So they're privately held investments by other different institutions or fund managers and. So it might be not as mainstream of categories. And so energy could be included in there. Certain real estate holdings could be included in there. I mean, fashion, there could be some really interesting fashion technology. <laughs> okay. So so it's not just alternative energy space. Right, uh, specifically. right. So, you, you were not focused on that. Okay. No, but that's really where I spent the bulk of my time. But I really understood early that there's three pillars to make all of this work and it's finance, technology, and policy. So I was seated in that finance role, right? But I knew that technology and policy were going to have to play a key role in us solving climate change and us getting technologies and us getting the systems right. And so I was fortunate to you know, deep dive into finance and really understanding as a bank, what were the assets and tools that we had available to support the, tra the energy transition? right? So we provide capital. So we provide loans, we provide investments and services. And so I became really curious about what were we doing? Were we funding renewable projects? Were we funding sustainable agriculture? And so I went on this journey and, and I learned that, wow, we were, we were doing a lot. In 2008, Wells Fargo and Wachovia merged. And so they became this, this bigger entity. They doubled the footprint, they doubled the team. And at that point, they only they didn't have a, a chief sustainability office. And so I was lucky enough to be drafted into that. So I was the third hire into this sort of global ESG sustainability group. So I really got to be at the ground floor of building and shaping what was the environmental gonna, commitment going to look like for this now, you know, one of the largest banks in the U.S. and also with some global assets. So I really got a whiteboard. And so that's cool. Yeah, it was, it was very cool. It was, again, I got to learn so much about 
our own footprint, where we were deploying capital, where we could grow the business too in this area. So I became a big champion and I'll connect this to the science in one second. Um, <laughs> it's my second LED moment. So I, I think I have three moments. No, that's great. Yeah, that's good. That's right. I, yeah, absolutely. But so I, you know, I kind of got to come in and, and take a, a broad look at, at what the bank was doing. And as we started to make commitments about how we were going to deploy, you know, billions of dollars into the energy transition, how we were going to do our own footprint, get our own footprint to net zero, it was 100 million square feet of real estate. And what I realized is we didn't actually have the technology available to do that. So there was LED, you know, light bulbs, but there wasn't the other building management systems. There wasn't the on-site storage technology needed. There wasn't all the bells and whistles, the smart windows that you need smart irrigation. And so I said, well, we're not going to meet this goal, right? We don't have the technology. And what, what time frame is this? Is this what, what so this year? So this is or... 2010 about, kind of 2008. And this is at Wells Fargo, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And this is, uh, so this is well before like ESG became mainstream. I mean, it's like blown up now that term, I suppose, right? And but this Exactly. Is before that. We, we were sort of like the pioneers of ESG before that term okay, cool. uh, came out. And then I'll connect this to Breakthrough Energy because it's a really interesting through point. And so I realized we didn't have the technology. So I said, but it's got to be developed somewhere. Somebody's got to be working on this stuff, right? And so I went around to national labs and to universities and lo and behold, there it was. I found all these brilliant entrepreneurs and scientists and researchers that were working on energy efficiency, the built environment, there was an incredible amount of accelerators and incubators, but we know this is the valley of death. And so they couldn't get the technologies out of the labs into the market. They couldn't get the adoption. Hard to raise money. This was clean tech, what we call 1.0, where people had deployed a lot of capital in, into the space and, and the returns weren't as strong as we had hoped. And so at that point, that was my second LED light bulb moment where I said, we need a, a vehicle, we need a funding vehicle to go fund these technologies and de-risk them. And then what if Wells Fargo could be the early adopter first customer, and we could set up an incubator inside of our own footprint to bring on the technologies, then we'd be an early adopter, and then they could maybe have a chance to get to market sooner. So that became my, my passion. And so I launched the Wells Fargo Innovation Incubator, or IN2, and that's exactly what we did is we went out and funded technologies, de-risked them, we installed them in our buildings. And then I went to people like Breakthrough Energy and I said, hey, we've de-risked this amazing you know, on-site battery storage technology. It works. Here's what it's doing for us. Would you be interested in coming in and writing some follow-on capital to help this really scale into the large business that we think it could be? And so that's what happened in, in a handful of those technologies that I de-risked now are in the Breakthrough Energy Ventures portfolio. So that's how, that's kind of my journey about how I, how I learned about Breakthrough. And when you say de-risk, it's sort of like, uh, you know, prove that it works at a very basic level. You're not mass producing it, but you're sort of taking it from, oh, this is an idea to, oh, no, so this is actually a functional thing that we could actually build more of. Is that what you mean there? Yes, exactly. Okay. So when you install technologies into you know, a publicly traded company, you've got a lot of firewalls and data and information. And so you've got to really understand how that technology works, what the risks are of installing it, how does it work with all the other systems you have in place. And so that was hard, but for the entrepreneurs 
that was really a good service because we got to fast track them through our procurement. And I always like thinking about things differently. So different ways of doing things instead of top down, bottom, just like how, how do we think differently about bringing something to market? Oh, that's very cool. Wow. What an interesting path. That's amazing. Jesse, can I jump in here? This whole discussion, Ashley, is going to center around, you know, how do we get to net zero and what's your role in that? But can you tell us about how this came to be for you? When were you first exposed to climate change science? What did that look like? How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the research I was doing early on, but I remember going and seeing Tom Friedman speak. And so his first book, The World is Flat, and then shortly after reading Daniel Jurgen's books, these are 800 page books, The Prize in the Quest, because I had to understand the history first. I had to understand the history of energy, but then I had to understand the risk. And that's what Tom Friedman's book, right, is, is really, hey, if we don't do something, this is the trend pattern that we're on. And so that was a big wake up moment for me reading those books. The third book was Abundance by Peter Diamandis. And this is where it's the optimist view. So I carry a very optimistic view that technology solves this, right? That human ingenuity, that collaborating, one plus one equals three, we've got to do it together. And that's very much Bill Gates, right? That's why he has been a hero. And that's the way he thinks. And in his book, here's the approaches, right? How to Avoid a Climate Disaster is the fourth book. And it is approachable. It's really, really hard, but the science is real. But technology can play such a key role. And we've seen that in other sectors. I also just quickly, I don't think we focus enough on how far we've come in this space. I think we tell a lot of the story about how far we have to go, which which there is a long distance. But we have been making gains. If you look at the cost of where solar and wind if you look, if you look at some of the things we've done in the food space, in the system space, in electric vehicles, there's still a lot we have to do. But we have been making gains, and that story not told enough. Yeah, that, that, that's that's absolutely true. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Yeah, like you said, major leaps forward seem to be going on all the time. Yeah, Jesse, I think she brought up a point that kind of goes with a question that you and I were talking about before we jumped on here. Okay. Maybe before we go to there, Ashley, could you give us just a general high-level structure of Breakthrough Energy and the the Breakthrough yeah. Fellows program that you lead, how those fit together? Can you kind of just you know elevator pitch that yeah. to us? Yeah. So in 2015, out of the Paris Accord, that's when Breakthrough really was born. That's when others came together and launched Breakthrough Energy Ventures that I talked about. And so that is the, so what's the, the tradition. What is the difference between those two, Breakthrough Energy and yeah. Breakthrough Ventures? So Breakthrough Energy Ventures was started to fill a gap to fund climate tech, deep science, hard tech. So industrial technologies like batteries and steel, cement. There wasn't enough venture capital focused in those areas. So they launched Breakthrough Energy Ventures with Bill and a number of other high net worth individuals to put together this fund that really didn't exist to just focus on these areas and with patient capital. And so they are investing in what we call series A to D. And so companies that are have a technology, but they need a lot of scale up. And so that was formed. Well, then in about 2020, when the book came out, 
Bill and other leadership on our side realized, you know what, there's these other gaps we have to fill. And so Breakthrough Energy expanded its mandate. And so in addition to the Ventures Group, we've launched the Fellows Program, which is the one I'm leading, I'll talk about. We launched our Catalyst Group, which is another fund that we have. And then we strengthened our policy, government relations, and advocacy group. And so you had fellows, ventures, catalysts now with this underpinning of policy work across the platform. And so that's how now this has broadened, right? The mandate has broadened. And what I really appreciate about it is it's now this end-to-end approach. So fellows is now working on the early stage, again, back into the labs. What are scientists doing Right, because we need more capital to be taking more shots on goal in the early stage, so we can have these leapfrog technologies. So, and not enough money is flowing into that high risk space. Again, in the industrial. So, I'll tell you all the stuff we're doing in fellows: hydrogen, electrofuels, fertilizer. So, all deep tech. And then our catalyst program is sort of the other bookend that once the technology works, like a hydrogen electrolyzer to produce energy cleanly. How do you build 20 of those factories and plants? Because banks today haven't done that before. They haven't underwritten that type of a facility. So they don't really know the track record, the bankability of it. And so we need a different model. So if the Catalyst program has a different funding model, Fellows also has a very different funding approach to scaling these technologies. So now you can think about us end-to-end technology, building, scaling, deploying, and then policy works okay. across all those sectors so okay I, chris could i i'm this i have so many questions it's, this is yeah, like, yeah i know I, go, I know, go for it okay chris do you want to take one or do you want me to uh, can i go go for it here go ahead so you touched on kind of the key that transition those conversations between of setting up the fellows program of like oh we need more technologies because there are people and I, and i think most people probably look around and say you know we have solar panels we have nuclear power we have wind farms like Where's the technology that we're missing? Can you kind of fill that in for me? Like, because there are people who argue, you know, we just need more political will to do this stuff. We can do it. We just need to, to actually do it. But you're saying sort of, no, we we still need to develop new stuff, I guess. Can you kind of point in a few directions where we need to develop new stuff? Yeah. And there is this great debate of innovation versus deployment, right, that happens. I sit in the camp of both. The problem is so large, we have to deploy what we already have. So we have to continue to have smart policy and continue to be able to deploy wind and solar that works. Well, right now there's there's a problem with supply chain and geopolitical and all the other issues. We can't get semiconductors. And so that's a little bit stalled out in our ability to, to deploy what we have. But in the innovation side, So one thing to think about is in the industrial space, like steel and cement, 90% of the power that goes to those big industrial sectors comes from fossil fuels. So those are big sectors, right? And so we have to transition the power supply. And that's where innovation, you can do some of that with renewables, but you really need things like cheap hydrogen to come online to be able to get to an energy transition. And within hydrogen, drilling down into like, what do we need there? When you take water, you guys probably know some of this, right? And you run it through an electrolyzer and a membrane and you split the water. So then you have hydrogen and oxygen, right? So you can get it to a gas. You've got to capture that gas. 
reuse it as power. When you run that process, the membranes we use today to do that include materials like titanium, platinum, really expensive, and they also degrade very quickly. So what we need are low cost, abundant materials that we could use in a membrane to make it more efficient, more durable, so the cost can come down so that hydrogen becomes a real economical solution, right? On the power supply, you can do a hydrogen. We spend a lot of time at Breakthrough Energy because it's an enabling technology. If you figure out hydrogen for power generation, you can use it as a fuel in aviation. You can use it in long haul shipping. You can use it in trucking. You can use it to make ammonia for fertilizer. So we spend a lot of time in hydrogen, but, but there's so many pieces of this in advanced new ways we think about advanced materials, new battery technologies. That's a big topic. The lithium story isn't the silver bullet because of the mining, where it comes from. So what we're doing in fellows is exploring what are other materials? What are other ways? What are other things that we could be using in replace of lithium to build better membranes? Those are some examples. So Ashley, do you see, how do I phrase this? Um, are you looking for an innovation that is just going to totally change the whole game? So we are. So at Breakthrough and, and across our ventures and with Catalyst and with fellows, we have a really high bar for impact. And so what we mean by that is everything that we look at has to demonstrate that it can abate 500 million tons of CO2 per year at scale. Now, if you're a really early membrane company, how do you know, right? But you've got to demonstrate to us that you have a scale and a plan that if your technology works, you have to demonstrate to us through a proposal and a model. You have to give us a model that shows, hey, if I'm able to do this and it reaches scale, that I can abate that significant amount of carbon on an annual scale. So we differ in that way because a lot of other people are working on smaller incremental gains and we need those too. Don't get me wrong. Again, I'm a both person. We need the big swings, high risk. We also need people working on more of the incremental gains. But what we're doing at Breakthrough, our mandate is really to look at the carbon impact, the carbon reduction of these technologies at scale. So you said 500 million tons? Yeah. So that's w about roughly what one percent of what we globally put in Correct. To the atmosphere, right? Correct. Okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. And they good have math, to, Chris. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he, every and once they, in a while, he does something good. I mean, it's rare. So, and and they have to prove this to the fellows, right, before they move on to the ventures, right? Yeah. They, they have to get yeah. through you first, right? Right. Oh, wow. Wow, that is a high bar. So I'll talk a little bit about why the need for the fellows, if that's helpful too, just in how we think about this continuum. But, you know, there's a lot of great programs available. The ones I worked with before, universities, national labs, incubators, accelerators that are fostering innovators working in the space. But one thing that's unique is the cost. And so if you're working in steel, if you're an innovator, you've got a PhD, you've studied material science and geology and some other things, and you have a thermochemical idea for how to make steel. It can't just be you in your garage tinkering around. You have to get, I mean, maybe that's where right. it starts in a lab at a university, but you have to get into a facility that has the right type of equipment, 
testing facility. You need other smart engineers around you to work on your project. You need third parties to, to be validating what you're doing. So how do you come up with the money right out of the gate when you start to scope? Hey, I have this idea, but in order to meet the first technical milestone to build a kilogram of this, holy cow, it's going to cost millions of dollars just to even get to that. It's very different than what we see in the software space, right? You can code something out, you can build an app. And so when you're doing deep tech right from the very beginning, it's so expensive. And so that's where we've really put some expertise into the place. And luckily we have resources too, to be able to support that. And so we bring fellows in, I'll talk about the application process in a minute, but we are able to unlock the funding that they need early on. And so it doesn't slow them down because otherwise they're going to have to go all to these pitch competitions and all kinds of, they're going to have to do 10 to 20 different applications for funding. They're going to have to cobble together, you know, here and there to get what they need to actually be in the lab. It's a very broken process. So what we're saying is, hey, if you're committed to this, we believe in the technology and the impact potential. We believe in you. We're going to give them right now. It's a non-dilutive grant. So we give them a grant and we tie it to their milestones and we say, go get into the labs. We help them get into labs. We put all those equipment and smart people around them so that they can hit the ground running and start to chase the most impactful technology milestones. And so that's a big difference in how we how we think about funding these guys early on. Wow, that is that's really interesting. So you have fellows then that you put around the people that you decide to fund that meet your benchmarks, that meet your your specs? Reframe that. So you said that you surround these people with really smart people. Are, yes. Who are you talking about? Okay. So there, great point. So we, again, think about our network too, right? So just being Breakthrough Energy, we've got all kinds of resources and human capital and people from industry and people from academia and national labs, from business. And so we fund two types of fellows. We fund innovator fellows and business fellows in our program. That's another unique part is this business piece. So innovator fellows come to the program with an idea. They're typically the scientist. They have the PhD. They have an idea. They may have some initial IP, intellectual property on a membrane, let's say, that they've brought. And what we do is then we also fund these business fellows. And these are folks that may have spent 20 years in commercialization at an industry, at an oil and gas company, at a materials company. They've taken things through the commercial value chain. So they've seen things come from a lab, come into the market, get funded, and and completely get into the market. And they've got all kinds of other understandings of customers, regulatory hurdles. How do you set up the right entities? How do you bring in follow-on funding and investment? So they really round out the skill set that the innovator fellow has, right? Because the scientists... It doesn't understand the full business impact. So we fund these two types of fellows and then we match make them. And so now you have an innovator fellow and a business fellow working together on this thesis. And then around that, we also bring in other advisors. We bring in access to our Breakthrough Energy Ventures team, access to other corporates, access to financial institutions to talk about how they 
how they would underwrite some of these technologies. So we bring them in and then build sort of um, a team around them to help them move the technology. I mean, this is really interesting. I, I, you know, well, I live in the university research sphere at Penn State. And like you said, it's a very exciting place. There are people who do everything. Look around and you'll find an expert on some random stuff, like on a university campus or these national research labs. But you really described it very well, that funding, you have to apply many times and cobble together a few hundred thousand dollars there, maybe 50K over there to get to something reasonable. So yeah, this is, if this resonates, I guess would be my point. Yeah, Jesse, if you live in that in that world, you get it, right? It's very competitive. Yeah. It's hard to unlock that money. I mean, to get a million dollar grant requires a lot of stuff to to do, even to run. I mean, I'm not doing climate change research or, or anything near the scale of this technology, but even just to run our little lab where we date rocks, you know, requires a lot of uh, a lot of effort. The question is, are you seeking people out? They're coming to you. I mean, how does that work, I suppose? And I guess the, the broader question is, are there fields that you do not look at? Like, I'm thinking of something like carbon sequestration, where probably an oil and gas company is going to be way better at carbon sequestration just because of their full stack of skill sets than, you know, somebody at a research university. Are, are there places where you think you can compete more, uh, you, you have an efficiency edge or something like that in this tech space? That was a very yeah. confusing question. Chris no, is looking no, no. at me like I'm an wow, idiot. I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. That was very confusing. <laughs> no, no. I'm actually, I'm following you there. So a couple things about who, you know, we're looking for, how we find them. I'm going to start there. Is So through our network, we use a nomination and referral process. And so we've got connections, a great group on my team that does recruitment and selection has all of this outreach into universities, research facilities, and you know, research hubs around the world. And basically, we understand what labs, you know, uh, what professors are working on certain topics. So we outreach, we build relationships with them. And so we, we nominate um, them to nominate a postdoc or PhD or, or a potential fellow. But then we also so have you do in- have you have like direct connections yeah. to university or national lab groups like sort of broader research groups in there. Okay, exactly. Although we do need cool. more, so let's talk after because we need. Yeah, this would be. So, I mean, this would be uh, great. I mean, if you're handing out money, I'm on board with that. Yeah, that so great. we need to we need <laughs> to go knock around the labs there. So yeah, absolutely. Um, Come, but we are always we are always casting a wider net. So that is a lot of it is spending the time to understand where the research is happening. So that's one piece of it. But then we also do have an intake form that we get intake ideas. So people from around the world that hear about our program can go and they can submit some information and then we can start to build a relationship that way. We've launched our first cohort of fellows last year. So we have nine projects. We have 17 fellows. Those are a mix of those innovator and business fellows that I talked about. We've got people working on, as I've mentioned, hydrogen, steel, cement, electrofuels, fertilizer. And so really, again, these deep tech areas and in that cohort. And now we're getting ready to launch our second cohort. And it's really interesting, the people that have applied, because some have, again, come through our network, some through the nomination process, but some people have just found us through this intake form. And so that's really exciting just to see the accessibility that, you know, people, we, we want the best and brightest minds to come in to apply. And we want them to think very outside of the box. This is a place in fellows, I call it bowling with the bumper lanes up. 
because you can <laughs> right. take risk, right? You can, you really take risk here. We will support you. And then once you start to make advancements on a milestone, then you want to go out and look at what's the next step. It could be Breakthrough Energy Ventures. It could be working with Shell. It could be doing a public-private partnership. So there's a lot of different launch-off points once the technology has been proven. The areas maybe that you were getting at, Jesse, that we're not doing directly, gosh, you know, more, more, I would say some things in the built environment, although, you know, we do, we actually do have a built environment technology in the second cohort. Some of the things- What's built environment? Can you- Oh, so just like in buildings, you know, so- to technology, making buildings more uh, efficient. steel. Well, that stuff we're using, that we're doing the infrastructure side of that, but like I was doing before at Wells, that hardware software layer of kind of the smart windows, for example. Or let's see, I'm trying to think where we're not. You know, we're pretty broad in our mandate because when you think about an area that I want to get deeper in, that I have a real passion in, around is agriculture. So I did spend a lot of my career in ag tech and in agriculture. And so ag tech is, again, combining the software and the hardware. So that's drone technology, sensor, soil sensor technology. But there's so much to be done in agriculture if we're going to feed people sustainably. Right. So we look at a lot of alternative protein, but we also look at on the farm So how to make more efficient fertilizer locally and modularly, how to get improved yields, but do it organically, sustainably. Do you look at irrigation practices? Yes. I mean, that's a big deal. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I just was looking. I mean, that's what's so interesting about my job. I'll say I'm so fortunate. Yesterday, I had two calls with, you know, somebody was working on an enzyme technology for hydrogen production. And then somebody was working on an irrigation project in Africa. So I was learning about that. It's just, it's really great. Um, wow, what a fun job. You just get to learn about all the most interesting stuff in the world. I mean, that is a great job right there. Man, wow. Well, but I need a lot of smart people around me to interpret it, right? So I, I'm coming from the financing side. I know enough now. And that's very much Bill and Breakthrough Energy, right? Is always be learning and surrounding yourselves and then asking the right questions. And so I ask a lot of questions. Ashley, you said that nine made it through in your first cohort. Can you give us an idea how many didn't make it through? Yeah. So in the first cohort, we didn't do that open intake form. It was more of a curated process. I think we had close to a hundred applicants in the first cohort. So it is a very competitive process. In the second cohort, you know, hundreds, I want to say 400 applications came in and we use an incredibly rigorous scientific process to down select and review. So we use, it's actually another kind of fascinating thing we do is we go out to hydrogen experts all over the world and they become our technical reviewers. We use people internally as well, all of our networks. We use university professors. And so we pull together people that know a lot about this. And then we go through a process of rating. Then we also look at the business side, though, because if this works, is there a market? There may not be yet. But what's the price target? 
they're trying to get their technology down to? Is it realistic in a timeframe that matches with Breakthrough Energy's vision? And so it's an art and a science, actually, when you do these down selects, because the other third and most important piece is who is the individual? Is this person 100% committed? Are they coachable? This goes, Chris, back to our coaching days, right? (laughs) You know, people do the work. We're not there to have robots doing all this yet. So people are doing the work. And so is this person committed? This is a long journey and there's going to be hard times and, you know, are they committed and are they coachable? Are they willing to take feedback because they're not always going to be right? And so those are the sort of the three pieces is the technical side of what we're looking at, the finance and all those metrics and the market conditions, but who's the person leading it? That's incredibly important. Yeah. Ashley, I don't know if you can answer this question and and if you, if you can't, then don't. Do you have something in your first cohort or the cohort coming up that you are like really excited about? Oh, no. Now you're asking me to pick my favorite child. Um, (laughs) Goodness. So let me think about it for a minute. Let me come back to that one. Okay. okay. Yeah, for sure. What's the, can right. I ask about the the finances of this? Like, is there a return on investment expectation? And if so, what's the time frame? And what does it cost for, you know, what'd you say, nine projects and 17 people in the first cohort or something like that? Like, can you give me some insight into that? Yeah. So the fellows program is structured with philanthropic dollars today. So that means that these are grants which again is another huge asset for the entrepreneur that they're not giving up any equity early on. And we believe that it's important at this stage to de-risk with philanthropic dollars. And so we're fortunate to have those resources from Bill and others providing philanthropic dollars. So there is not a return expectation in the fellows program today. They come into the program for two years And we fund their full salary, benefits, travel, you know, any of the other infrastructure access they need to IHS reports or um, certain tools. So we really give them all of that so they can be 100% dug in. And then our research grants range from $1 to $3 million per project per year. And so if you're talking about over 24 months, right? And so pretty significant grant funding right out of the gate that they can get. And the goal of the fellows program, you know, we're getting into our second cohort, believe it or not, next week, I'm already scoping for cohort three, looking at things like nuclear. Yeah, cool. And so, you know, the goal is to get a hundred plus projects in this over the next couple of years. So it's really a portfolio approach. And something that I think is important too, that that Bill is really passionate about is not all these are going to work right? This is the high risk sandbox that we're in. But what we hope that happens is if some of these entrepreneurs come in and the technology doesn't work, it hits what we call a showstopper, they'll have the confidence to do it again. They'll go try something else. They'll join another team. They'll maybe come to work with us or one of our other partners, but we keep them in the climate sector, right? So we want to be attracting all of these minds to keep working on these solutions, even though their first thing made may have not worked, but we know they'll have learned a lot, grown their network. So that's another way we measure success is how do we keep them going, keep them trying? 
Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. Chris, did you have another question? No? I do, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure actually, you do. Can, can I ask you a soapbox question? I want you to like, I want you to preach. Okay. <laughs> what <laughs> breakthrough energy is all about getting to zero carbon. What is our greatest obstacle? How does this happen? People, you know, honestly, because what did I say at the beginning? There's three pillars for this to happen. Technology, policy, and finance, but people coming together and working in a coordinated way is what it's going to take. Everybody, in the, you know, people working on the technology side, on the finance side, and the policy side are going to have to make some sacrifices and we're going to have to learn, but we're going to have to do it together. It's not going to be, you know, I know we, we all hope that it's Elon Musk or Bill Gates or somebody has this one silver bullet that solves everything. I don't think that's how this plays out. I think we're going to have multiple solutions in hydrogen and nuclear, and it's going to take deep collaboration with people to work together. And even though it may be hard and uncomfortable and, you know, not directly square with one of your mandates, but it's the right thing to do. And we just don't have the time. We don't have the time for the bureaucracy, frankly. We have to work together and we have to work cross border, cross ocean. We've got to find technology in the U.S. or South America that's needed in India, right? We've got to be able to quickly move technologies around, move finance and capital around, and have really aggressive policies. I believe people have to, to find a way to work together. And that's what I think the power of breakthrough energy is, actually, because we come in as a neutral player, as a private institution with significant resources but a lot of expertise and intel where we're deploying capital. And if you look at our Catalyst program, we've been able to pull together the European Commission, the governments, the technology field, the industry partners like American Airlines and Shell. And so we are a great facilitator to bring all those people together to work on a project, to work on a mission, and we can do it quickly. So, you know, I think models like ours really can be at the forefront, but the people have to work together and think out of the box. So are you saying then that it's, are we fighting a buy-in? Is that what you're suggesting? That I think, yeah, I think in some ways that you think about these huge utilities and these big players for the energy transition, right, to happen. Think about all the pipeline infrastructure that has to be retrofitted or convert, just think about the number of stakeholders, right, to really transition this. And many of them have had just the way they've been set up, they're not incentivized really to think about innovation and disruption. They're just there day to day. They've got shareholders, they've got all of these other competing priorities. And so they're not putting the urgency at the top, right? They're just day to day. And so we need, we need leadership in these organizations to say, hey, we need to kind of shift this big boat that we're steering and get laser focused on the energy transition. We need to have a seat at the table, put dollars to work in partnership and get some of these projects going so that the cost can come down, then the market can absorb it. But if people just do, the, you hear the business as usual, right? 
with these big stakeholders, you're not going to get there. And the other thing is these big companies and these big institutions need to come up with a way to be able to absorb the incoming technologies, right? And so if, if there is a pioneering thing that comes through fellows and it's in the steel market, we need the steel players to be able to absorb that quickly and get that technology into their systems. And so today they just haven't done a ton of that. And so that's what I think about these big stakeholders making a commitment to onboarding new technologies and to be laser focused on innovation. Hmm. That, that's, that's a really interesting answer. Uh, not one I was expecting, but I like it. It resonates a lot. I think, you know, the other aspect that really resonates a lot is this willingness to fail. And I didn't realize that fellows was a philanthropic uh, endeavor, but that makes complete sense. Actually, you know, the grants I apply for the philanthropic private foundation ones have so much more flexibility and willingness to have an idea not work out, I think, than some of the federal or the sort of more government based granting agencies where they, they want deliverable products. So that really kind of resonates. So you kind of touched on this in regards to the people and the buy-in thing. And I'm interested in your answer because you don't have a geoscience background, but Chris and I are both educators fundamentally. What are the few one or two things that you think everybody needs to know about this problem with either data points or ideas or concepts? What would you say that Chris and I should be telling everybody in our classes uh, that they need to know? Great question. It really goes back to the basics of, I mean, I think when I came in, I didn't even understand what it meant when I flipped a light bulb, right? When I turned on a switch. And that's why I went and read the prize and the quest to understand the history of energy. But I think everybody needs basic understanding of how the energy system works. And, And then from there, the water system, I just think people don't really understand the grid how it works today. Many people don't anyways, right? And I try to teach my kids a a lot of the the basics. And I actually teach an elementary school course on Solar 101 here in Denver. That's awesome. But so I just, I think like you really have to understand the fundamentals. And you guys get this, like natural resources, where things come from, how are things made, plastic, all of that, how much water goes in to what we're using. And there's a lot of great statistics on food systems, on clothing, on energy, and all the different inputs and how that gets made is really important. I've also toured landfills. I've toured recycling facilities. I think if you can take people out into the field, if you can go to a natural gas, you know, you got to get access to do all this stuff. But I'm also an incredibly visual learner. And so when all the smart engineers are explaining things to me, I need a lot of visualizations. And, <laughs> um, but I think going out and seeing, I've been to, I spent a ton of time on farms. I've been in central California. I've seen mass produced lemon farms, mass produced cattle. And so I think you got to go out and see and really understand the systems and, and where things are made, how they're made, what the impact is. And then you can start to, then you start to think about innovation. Where's the inefficiency in what I'm saying? Oh my gosh, we still do it this way? That's crazy. The grid still <laughs> yes. looks the same? That's insane. So then you start to build this curiosity, right? But for me, I think you got to go see it and you got to understand the basics. 
Ashley, can you pick one or two examples of, wait, wait, we really do it this way still that you've seen that really shook you? Well, just as we're on the agriculture, I mean, if you go out and you drive through Fresno or Bakersfield and you look at the way we harvest, it's backbreaking. It's terrible, right? And it's it's actually the most expensive piece, right? So labor, and it's just the condition of that, right? I just am still shocked when you see that strawberries for specifically. And I worked on a project at UC Davis where they developed a, a machine that could go through the field using smart AI, using smart sensors and x-ray technology, and it would go over the field and it would sense whether something had ripened, it would look at the roots, it would look at the color, it would, and in real time, it could pick up, right? And it would leave other things. But what was great about that is then it would, you know, harvest it into this large trunk. And then all of the people that were in the fields, they would go inside and do quality control, right? And so then you you could repurpose their jobs. And then they learned about robotics. This was a great program at UC Davis on workforce development and how do we shift that? But this was an amazing technology that had been developed, and then you could shift around the workforce, and it was more efficient, it was more humane, learning was an important part of it. And so, you know, in agriculture, there's still a number of things that shake me. That's one example. Perfect. That's a good answer. Ashley, I can't help but think of this with the talk that that we've had and how like interesting your job is and you know how important it is too i mean 2 years ago we're hit with this pandemic they developed a vaccine at lightning speed nobody nobody thought that was possible i i can't help but see a parallel with what we're talking about you know is is that kind of thing possible with climate and climate change 100% And the reason I say that is I have a lot of friends and family and they get pretty doom and gloom when they think about climate, right? They kind of read the headlines or where I live in Colorado now, the wildfires have become so prevalent and constant. And so they, they feel very hopeless or what can I do? And they come to me, you know, and I am very fortunate that like I've told you every day I am seeing and surrounded by people that are 100% committed to solving. And we are just on the brink. There's so the pipeline that I'm seeing is incredible. If it works, it's going to matter. And and the number of shots on goal that we're taking, a few of those are going to stick, right? You, You don't hit a home run every time, but if you take a number, you know, it's a numbers game, right? And so you got to keep coming up to bat and swinging. And that's what we're doing. And so I am just so incredibly optimistic that people are going to innovate us through this. And I'm already starting to see, even in cohort one, this week we were at the Department of Energy ARPA East Summit. Luckily, it was in Denver in my backyard. There was 2,000 people from around the world all here presenting ideas on climate change solutions from a technical standpoint. 2,000 people. Now, not all those were innovators. Some were investors and and policy folks. But I just spent this week alone immersed looking at alternative mining, looking at ocean technology, 
looking at hydro technology. I mean, just the amount of people that are working on this day in and day out, the national lab system in the U.S. and what they're doing. And so I know it's hard for the everyday person to grasp that and feel that, but they should feel comforted that it is happening, that we are close, just like in, in the life science, what we saw with with vaccines, right? I do think that people in this sort of next two, three, four, five years, we are going to have these incredible breakthrough solutions um, that are going to help us and give us a lot of hope and time. And like I said, some of that's already happening now. You're just not reading about it, right? So we do, we need to- Why are we not reading about it? Well, so I talked about one of the biggest problems being people, right? The other is communication. I think- that we have to do a better job of telling these stories and educating what are the big problem statements people are working on. I mean, we don't have the, the full time today. We should do a part two and, and I can Absolutely. bring in, <laughs> I can bring in um, another colleague of mine, Ben Gaddy, who's our PhD that he can really get into with you guys. Oh, um, I mean, how close sounds are great we? to us. Let's yeah, put, it on the, so put it on the books. <laughs> you could do a breakthrough 2.0, but. Is it a part of breakthrough to do that? Yes. Get that information exactly. out too? Is, exactly. Okay. So that's the other piece of our platform is we've launched Cypher. If you're not following that, it's our climate newsletter and publication. But our goal is to really start pushing the information. What are we seeing? What are we learning? As part of the philanthropic mandate, as a public good in a service, that is a huge goal of what we're doing. And so um, I'll be doing that now more with fellows, right? What are we learning? Where are these technologies at? What are the bottlenecks? So communication needs to get significantly strengthened in this industry. That's uh, that's exciting. I mean, and I can't think I can speak for Chris that we would love to talk to fellows or you got anything <laughs> interesting, you know, send them, send them our way. We love talking about. Oh this yeah. We should do that. You should talk with uh, the P the resident PhDs I have on my team and then the fellows. I'd love to have you. Cause I couldn't pick one of my favorites here today, but I'd love <laughs> well, to. <laughs> we won't make you do that. That's okay. I'd love <laughs> to have one. I think, I think having a fellow come on your show and explain how they got into this, what their journey is. You know, I'm the connector. That's what I love to do is connect the right people together. But having the scientists talk about what's their journey and what are they getting through the fellowship and where do they expect to be in a year or two years from now? Yeah, that'd be totally exciting. That'd be awesome. Well, all right, actually, yeah. before we let you go, we have to ask our like okay. traditional closing okay. question here. And we usually say, what's you know your single best day as a scientist? But let's change it to, what has been your single best day in ESG investing, if we can put it that way, in your field, let's say? Oh my goodness, the single, the single best day. Hmm. Well... I got to give two. Sorry. Um, That's okay. (laughs) That's allowed. That's allowed. I mean, (laughs) you know, one I think is when I, I talked about that program at Wells Fargo, the very first technology that we installed on the building um, was a sensor technology and we installed it, we plugged it in and immediately it worked and immediately it gave us the diagnostics reading that we needed on lighting and HVAC and over time, just in that branch, we had a 30% reduction in energy efficiency just from this unit. But, but when that vision 
came to life of, wow, this was just in a lab at UC Berkeley. And it was just an idea and that we had spent the time and investment to get it de-risked and now put it in the building. We were all there. We turned it on and it worked. So actually just, again, seeing that happen and knowing. And then now I built other models off of that. Right. So that was a pretty special day. The second. That sounds very cool. Yeah. Very rewarding. Yeah. So that that was very rewarding. Right. Just to kind of see um, the, the impact. And then I'm, I'm just I'm going to say. This week, so I've been at this for almost 20 years. This week, as I told you, I was at the Department of Energy ARPA-E, and for the first time in two years, my entire team and all of the fellows from around the world for Cohort 1 were all together. And I've hired people over the last two years. I've never met them, right? That's just so strange. And so we all came together and I can't explain, you know, the power of bringing that community together, the impact that they're going to have, the incredible work that my team has done to get them there, to find these people, to fund them, to make connections for them, to help move their technologies in a rapid way. Just all being together, just having that community, that was a pretty special moment because we've all been remote and there's just something about being together. So for me, that was a very pinnacle moment and just also seeing how excited I personally am to continue to grow what we're doing and thinking the next time we get together, it'll be 50 and then 100. And so just I'm really excited about the momentum that Breakthrough Energy has, you know, our mission and the people, the people that we are working with and supporting, you know, everyone should have hope. There's some brilliant people out there working on this. Very cool. Well. Those are two pretty damn good answers, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well done. Well done. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Ashley. This has been a real pleasure having you. And we look forward to part two coming up. (laughs) Part two. Yeah, we'll bring some other people back. So you guys have been so great. Thanks for what you're doing. Would love to learn from you and and let's talk Penn State. We we need to we need to find yeah. some people there. So come to Penn State. You know, if you get into the nuclear industry, I think we we have a research reactor at Penn State. If you're ever uh, if you're ever coming to campus, look me up. Absolutely, that'd All be right. great. Could show um, you the lab and everything. Thanks, Ashley. Thank Take you. care. This has been great. Yeah, it has. All right. Have a Take good day. Care. Thanks. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Planet Geo. You can follow us on all the pla- you can follow us on all the social medias. We are at Planet Geocast. Send us an email. Visit our website. Give us a rating and a review. Those really help the algorithm. And reach out if you have questions. We love that stuff. Right on. Take care.